I'm uh, grateful to see the evidence of this, the work of the Spirit here in your community and pray that would only increase over months and years ahead. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to share things with you that mean so very much to me. I love these things that we're looking at. You can probably tell, but I, I do. They've affected me deeply. So it's a pleasure to share them with you. Well, you ought to be experts on the Trinity by now, huh? Uh, ha having had uh, two sessions on it. So let me just walk through a little review with you on the top of the handout. Uh, beholding the beauty of the Son's relationship with the Spirit. And there's a bit of review here I want to think about with you. There is one and only one God, eternally existing and expressed in three divine persons. Each person is equally God and each is fully God. Not three gods, but three persons equal in essence, but different in personal expressions of the one undivided and eternal divine nature. Each person, then, is fully God, not one-third God, but fully God. Yet it is not the Father or Son or Spirit alone who is fully God, but each exists along with the others, each of whom possesses fully and eternally the identically same divine nature. So what distinguishes the Father, the Son, and the Spirit from each other is not and cannot be the one and undivided divine nature. This, the divine nature, is possessed equally and fully by the Father and by the Son and by the Holy Spirit. What distinguishes the three persons then are, remember these two R words, the ontological and functional relations that each has with each of the other others and the particular roles that each carries out in relation to each of the other persons. What then characterizes the distinct relationships and roles of the Spirit now in relation to the Father and the Son? So that's what we're focusing on tonight. Last Wednesday night, we looked at the relations of the Father and the Son together, and tonight we're focusing on the Son and the Spirit. And remember, I mentioned to you that if you ask, what about the Father and the Spirit? Really, there is not a lot in the Bible on that, but in what there is... Uh, also includes the Son in almost anything that is said. Not everything, but almost any, everything that is said of Father and Spirit involves the Son. <coughs> so as we focus on the Son and the Spirit tonight, we'll see the role of the Father in that as well. Okay, next paragraph leads us into what we're looking at this evening. Amazingly, on the subject of Jesus and the Spirit, there are clearly two themes in the New Testament. On the one hand... Jesus relies upon the Spirit in doing His work, in performing His miracles, in living His life. But on the other hand, Jesus also claims authority over the Spirit and proclaims unequivocally that the Spirit will glorify Him. Can it possibly be that both are true? If so, just how can this be? Do you, do you get the point I'm making here? When you look at the New Testament, especially, you see that uh, in, in relation to Jesus and the Spirit, on the one hand, Jesus depends upon the Spirit, relies on the Spirit, is led by the Spirit, uh, is directed by the Spirit, is empowered by the Spirit. And, and you think, well, then the Spirit must, in a sense, have authority over the Son. But then, on the other hand, Jesus sends the Spirit. Jesus says the Spirit uh, will not speak on His own initiative. Thank you, John. Uh, he will speak as I tell Him. Uh, he will glorify me. And in that sense, the Son has authority over the Spirit. So, which is it? And the answer is, it's both. 
in two different senses. So track with me on this. First of all, we're going to see Jesus' reliance on the Spirit, <clears throat> his being empowered by the Spirit, his being directed by the Spirit to fulfill his role as the Spirit anointed Messiah. So as he comes as a man, he depends upon the Spirit. Uh, as, as, a, as one who has taken on human nature. Now, what, what uh, helped me see this what were these two questions that you see there in the bullet points that are there. Have you learned that questions are your friends, not your enemies? Especially difficult questions. You know, questions where you just don't see how in the world it can be answered. Uh, they really do provide for you the, the glimmer of light that there is a reality out there that you haven't seen yet. And, uh, and when you see it, oh my goodness, it can be stunning. I mean, a number of the things that I have come to see by God's grace as he's helped me see this have started with questions uh, that then, then result in, wow, this, this wonderful display of truth that is in God's word that I had not seen. Well, here are two questions that plagued me at one time, and, uh, and yet uh, I, I see them now as beautiful in helping us understand who Jesus is in his incarnate life. First question is this, why would Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, why would he need to have the Spirit of God upon him? What can the Spirit of God add to the deity of Christ? And there is an answer to that question. What can the Spirit of God add to the deity of Christ? Nothing. Nothing. The deity of Christ is infinitely full. It can't be added to. So, and, and th so here's the point. He's already fully God and fully man. So what's the point of having the Spirit come upon him when he already has the divine nature as, as he is God, the Son of God? What's the point of the Spirit? I mean, it honestly, it looks superfluous. It looks unnecessary. What's the point? Here's the second question. How can Jesus in his sinless obedience and his sacrificial service rightly be upheld as a model for how we should live since he was the God-man and we are not? I remember, th this question goes way back for me. I think I was 13 years old when this question first came to my mind. I was uh, sitting on my bed in the basement, my basement bedroom in the home I grew up in. This is in Spokane, Washington, where I grew up. And uh, I was reading my Bible because our pastor had said we ought to read our Bible more, so I was. And I was reading through 1 Peter and came to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, where it says, We are to follow in his steps who committed no sin. Now, I read those words. I dropped my Bible in my lap. I looked up as if looking up to God, and I said, that's not fair. That is not fair. How can you call us to live like Jesus when he was God and we're not? Okay, now both of these questions are answered when you understand that, yes, though he was fully God, and this is critical for the, uh, for, for the atoning work of Christ to, to be effective, for that to work. So I, I won't go to that right at the moment, but he has to be fully God in order to, to be the atoning Savior. But though he was fully God, he lived his life out of his humanity with resources that were given to him in his humanity. So now go back to that first question. What can the Spirit of God add to the deity of Christ? 
Nothing. But what can the Spirit of God add to the humanity of Christ? Ah, everything supernatural that he would need to live his life as a man in a way in which we could live like him. Which brings up the next question, right? That is, he utilized resources that were given to him in his humanity, which resources we have also. The Word of God, prayer, the community of faith, and most significantly, the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit given to him that he then gives to us. And we'll see the significance of that later on. So that that answers the second question then too, doesn't it? How can Jesus in his sinless obedience and sacrificial service rightly be upheld as a model for how we should live? And the answer is because he lived as one of us, as a man in the power of the Spirit. We are given that Spirit. We are called to live like Jesus. So indeed, it it, it makes all the difference when you understand he really did live his life as a man in the power of the Spirit. Okay, now, I want to walk you through some passages to help you see how this is unfolded for us in Scripture. It begins in the Old Testament with prophecies of the coming of the Messiah who will have the Spirit upon him. So in Isaiah chapter 11, we read this. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Who is Jesse? Jesse? David's father, all right? So this really has a reference to the promise made to David that he would have a son who would sit upon his throne forever. It's rooted in that promise that is in 2 Samuel 7. Hear those S's? You'll remember it, right? 2 Samuel 7 uh, is the promise made to David that he would have a son who would reign upon his throne forever. That's the background of this passage. So a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now look, verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. I have two questions to ask you. Number one, as you think about the life and ministry of Jesus, is it evident to you that Jesus expressed, evidenced wisdom in the way that he dealt with people during his life and ministry? Absolutely. Give me a for instance. Jesus exhibiting wisdom. The, the, The Samaritan woman. Oh my, the wisdom that he had with that woman. How about with Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Wisdom, right? How about Jesus and the Pharisees? Oh my, they quit asking him questions. They knew they were going to get the short end of it, you know, if they, if they kept pursuing him. <clears throat> so did Jesus exhibit wisdom? Yes. Second question. According to Isaiah 11 verse 2, how did Jesus have such wisdom? It's a surprising answer, isn't it? By the Spirit that indwelt him. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of knowledge, of fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord meaning a resolute determination to walk in the ways of God. Did that characterize Jesus' life? Oh, absolutely. Resolute determination. 
to walk faithfully in the ways of God, to obey the commandment of the Father absolutely by the Spirit, according to Isaiah 11. So, so you see, this, this passage is indicating to us that the very character of Christ, the, 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 the characteristics of his life would be those that would, be, that would exhibit the Spirit. I mean, it's very much like Galatians 5, 22 and 23, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These qualities are, are, are exhibited by the power of the Spirit, so they were in Christ. Here's another passage, Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. What a beautiful passage that describes what will happen to all of us who, are, who belong to Christ because of his work in us. But it all begins with, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. So he's the, he's the one who comes in the power of the spirit. And in this text, the main emphasis not the only one, but the main one, is not the character formation in Christ as we saw in Isaiah 11, but rather his ability to proclaim the word of God accurately, to, to be forthright and, and accurate in his proclamation of the word. Because, you know, when Jesus came, he was not only the greater than David king and the greater than Levi priest, Right? Both of those are clearly true. The greater than David king and the greater than Levi priest, he was also the greater than Moses prophet. I mean, Moses they viewed as the greatest prophet of all, but think of Matthew 5. Oh my land! If you think of this from the perspective of Jews, a Jewish audience listening to Jesus, he quotes Moses. You have heard that it was said, uh, you shall not murder. So he quotes from the Ten Commandments, right? He's quoting Moses. And then he says, but I say to you, good grief. Who do you think you are? You know, to, to, to surpass Moses. Indeed. You remember how that Sermon on the Mount ends? He spoke as one having authority. No kidding. You know, the, the Pharisees would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says, and Rabbi so-and-so says, and oh, but Rabbi so-and-so So they had all this discussion about all the, what all the rabbis would say about different things. And, uh, and here comes Jesus and says, here's the way it is. You know, Moses says this, but I say to you. So indeed, he speaks the word of the Lord as a prophet with, with, with a certainty and with authority and with power. And he does this in the power of the Spirit. Isn't that amazing? Now, when does Jesus receive the Spirit? I believe it was at his conception. Look at this next passage with me, Luke 1, verses 32 to 35. Uh, the angel Gabriel has come to Mary and has said to her that she is the favored one 
who will give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. She is disbelieving of that, right? How could this be? We'll see that in a moment. But here's what he says of the Messiah who will be born of Mary. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. That's rooted, by the way, in 2 Samuel 7, right? That promise in the Old Testament that said David will have a son who would sit upon his throne forever is now fulfilled in Christ. So then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So, a couple things happen here in, in uh, uh, according to what the angel Gabriel says. One is that the Holy Spirit works miraculously to bring about the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary without a human father. So he is, he is conceived without a father being involved. And hence, what we call the virgin birth of Christ, I suppose that's completely true. Actually, the big miracle happened nine months earlier, right? The virgin conception of Christ in the womb of Mary uh, by, by the miracle, miraculous work of the Spirit bringing this about. He also, at the same time, brought about this union of, a, of His divine nature. This was the second person of the Trinity to whom was added a human nature. So this union of, of human and divine happens uh, in the womb of Mary. So she actually gives birth to one who is both fully God and fully man. Isn't that amazing? So again, the Holy Spirit does that. But here I think a third thing takes place. Not only the miraculous conception of his human nature and the joining together of human and divine, I also believe that the Holy Spirit came upon him in his humanity at the conception, at his conception. And I think one hint of that is in the last verse there where the angel Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you so that the holy child will be called the Son of God. So that repetition of holy which I think is more than merely he will be sinless. Yes, indeed, he will be. He will not have the sin of Adam. He will be sinless. But I think it means also he will have the Holy Spirit upon him. Now, here's another reason for thinking that this is the case, is that John the Baptist, who's the forerunner of Messiah, was filled with the Spirit when? Do you remember? This is in Luke 1.15. While, while in his mother's womb... So before he was born, the Spirit came upon the forerunner of Messiah. How much more the Messiah, I would argue, would have the Spirit from his conception. Here's another reason for thinking so. What's the other point in Jesus' life that people might point to and say, ah, oh, that's when he received the Spirit? His baptism. Well, that's when he's 30 years old. So here's my question for you. How do you get from zero to 30 this is not miles per hour. This is years, right? How do you get from zero to 30 sinless? And I think if you, if you don't say that he has the Spirit upon him, then you have to default to the more common evangelical view that I think is wrong, and that is he lived his life out of his deity, right? In order to live sinlessly. I mean, he went through his teenage years sinless, do any of you parents, any of you, I mean, do you marvel at that? That's incredible. 
<coughs> uh, sinless for, for all of that time. So I think it makes much more sense to say that he had the Spirit right from the beginning. Goodness, here's another, here's another problem with the notion that he received the Spirit at his baptism. If he's lived sinlessly for 30 years without the Spirit, what's the point of giving him the Spirit now? He's been doing just fine, thank you. So, I mean, it just, you just wonder why. Why? What, what, what's, what's the point of this? When he's, when he's been following the, the ways of God, obeying his Father, uh, doing all that the Father's wanted him to do, uh, presumably without the Spirit, why now? So I do believe it's best to think that in Jesus, indeed Jesus had the Spirit upon him from his conception, and so had the Spirit all the way through. Here's another indicator. It's the next verse on your handout. Luke 2 verses 40 and 52. These verses are the bookends around the one account uh, we have in the Gospels of Jesus' uh, childhood. When he, at 12 years old, was taken down to Jerusalem by his parents for his dedication. And you remember how the story goes. After the ceremony was over, they head back to Nazareth, right? They're heading back up north. I don't know how far they got, you know, we're not told that, but they're proceeding along the way, and all of a sudden they realize, now granted, there probably were a lot of people, so don't be too hard on the parents here, right, you know, but, uh, but still they, they look around and they go, oh my goodness, Jesus is not here. Uh, you know, this 12-year-old boy that, that they took down to be dedicated, he's not here. So they went back to Jerusalem and found Jesus in the temple, conversing with teachers of the law in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, I, you know, honestly, I don't know that any of us, including myself, can appreciate how much those teachers of the law in the temple in Jerusalem would have known. They all would have had Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, memorized perfectly. Probably much of the rest of the Old Testament as well memorized. Plus, they would have had command of the rabbinic literature that was there present for them that had been, the, the, the writing of it began about 300 years earlier. This rabbinic literature, all the rabbis would say different things and they would, they would have mastered all of that material. So, I mean, honestly, they would have just been incredibly knowledgeable in everything related to the Bible. And, and here is Jesus in their presence and they are astonished at the things he is saying at 12 years old. And if you ask the typical evangelical, how is it that Jesus could hold his own with the teachers of the law in the temple in Jerusalem, what is the answer you're likely going to get? He's God. Look, look at, now he is God. He is God. But I am convinced that's the wrong answer to this question. Look at Luke 2. Verses 40 and 52, these verses bracket this account of Jesus as, uh, as a 12-year-old boy. Verse 40, the child continued to grow and become strong, so physical growth that you would expect to take place in this young boy growing up. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom. Stop. Ask yourself this question. Is that a statement that is appropriate to be made of the divine nature of Jesus, increasing in wisdom. No, absolutely not. His divine nature is infinitely wise. So what is this a statement of? His human nature. 
He is increasing in wisdom. Look at the next phrase. The grace of God was upon him. I take it that's a veiled reference to the Spirit. The Spirit of God was at work within him. The grace of God was upon him, enabling him to understand the Word of God in greater detail, with greater depth of understanding. The Spirit is at work in his life. And then verse 52, likewise, this is the end of the the account. We read, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature. So growth in his inner life and growth physically and in favor with God and man. So I think these two verses that bracket that account help us understand that indeed the the, the reason that he was able to, to, to astonish the teachers of the law in Jerusalem was the fact that as a 12 year old boy he had grown that much in his understanding of the word of God. Uh, just a remarkable uh, hunger for the Word of God, pursuing the Word of God, meditating upon it. I, I, I think, you know, Psalm 1, the Psalter, the, the Psalms in the Old Testament, is largely Christological, largely about Christ. Not all of it, but a good deal of it. Psalm 1 is Psalm 1 for a reason. And I think it's because it depicts not only a, a given righteous man and a given wicked man, and contrast the two of them, it depicts the righteous man who loves the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. And he is like a tree planted by rivers of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Guess who that righteous man is? Indeed, it's Jesus. So he's the Psalm 1 prototype. He indeed Love that law. So, you know, if this is correct, this way of thinking is correct, and I'm convinced it is, uh, not, not everybody will agree with this. Some would want to appeal to his deity for this. I just think that's the wrong appeal. If this is correct, then you realize there had to have been a time in the early life of Christ when his identity as the Messiah the Son of God who has come to be Savior of the world was made known to him probably as he was reading the Scriptures. I I can imagine him meditating through the Psalms and coming to Psalm 22, which we know he knew. It begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows that Psalm. And he's reading that Psalm and the Holy Spirit illumines his mind to understand This psalm is about me. I'm the one who comes to fulfill what is written in this psalm. Or Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who bears the sin of others, who who is uh, uh, wounded for their transgressions and so on. That depiction, that servant is me. So indeed, uh, the Spirit illumining his mind to help him understand his identity as the Messiah. Now, I think he knew that by the time he was 12, because you remember when Mary came and said, why, you know, why, why did you do this to us? His response was, did, did you not know I had to be in my father's house? I don't think that was a reference to Joseph. Uh, you know, I don't think he, Joseph owned the temple, right? So did you not know I had to be in my father's house? So he understood who he was 
by, by 12 years old, likely much earlier than that as well. Okay, moving on. Then the next passage is of the baptism of Jesus. In Luke chapter 3, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in a bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. And in the baptism of Jesus, I take it then this is what happened, is that um, it's not that Jesus receives the Spirit in the baptism, but rather the baptism has two functions as it relates to our question here. Number one is it's empirical verification of his identity to others so that others know who he is. John the Baptist in particular, in John's gospel, in John chapter 1, uh, the father tells John, the one upon whom you see the spirit descend, that's my son. Uh, follow him. So it's empirical verification of the identity of Jesus. But also, I think it is a, a way in which the, the Spirit, um, as it were, anoints him for his mission. Because it's right at this point that he goes public, right? The battle is engaged head on from this point on. And so it is a release of spirit empowerment. Not that, not that he didn't have the spirit before, but the spirit now uh, is, is released in a way that perhaps is new because of the mission that he's about to engage. You see the same kind of thing in the book of Acts where Peter, who received the spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, in Acts 4, he's filled with the spirit and he speaks with boldness. And, and so you, you realize, boy, there is spirit empowerment, even though we already have received the indwelling spirit. So I think this is likely the case with Christ. So then after the baptism of Jesus, he then goes into the wilderness. Here's where we read it in Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Mark's account is even stronger. It says that the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness to be tempted. And you know, notice you know, the, uh, the, the way Luke writes this, it's very interesting. He's not just giving us Jesus' itinerary. You know, he went down to the Jordan River and was baptized, and then he went, and, and, uh, went, to, went to the wilderness. No, he has these statements, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan to go into the wilderness, right? So there is this emphasis then on the role of the Spirit in the life and ministry of Jesus. Likewise, after the temptation, well, by the way, okay, temptation, let me just say this. You'll have to think about this more later, but sometime compare, if you would, the three ways in which the woman in Genesis chapter 3 describes the tree that she takes the forbidden fruit from, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She says in verse 6, the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise, and overlay those three things onto Luke chapter 4, the three temptations of Christ. And guess what? They're the same categories. They overlay exactly. So I think the point is, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeds, but he does so in the power of the Spirit who is upon him. He obeys the Father and, and resists the temptation through the Spirit. Okay, then after the temptation, verse 14, Luke 4, 14, Jesus returned to Galilee 
in the power of the Spirit. Again, not just an itinerary, he returned to Galilee, but in the power of the Spirit, we are told. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. <coughs> then in Galilee, we read this account. This is where he quotes now from Isaiah 61, the passage we saw just a moment ago. Luke chapter 4, 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book, found the place where it was written. And now, now he quotes from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue are fixed on him. They're wondering, what is he going to say? And look at what he says. Can you believe it? He began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, the long-awaited Messiah predicted in Isaiah 61, is standing before you. Unbelievable. I want to see a video replay uh, of that moment, you know. I, well, actually, I want two angles. I want to see Jesus say those words. Uh, I want to see his face, you know, as he says, today the scripture is fulfilled. And I want to see the audience, you know, as they hear and the gasps, you know, uh, as they, you know, he grew up there. Little, little Jesus, you know. I've been back to my home church in Spokane. I preached there. Oh, little Brucey's here, you know. You know those ladies who knew me from the cradle roll on up, uh, you know. And so I, I, I can feel what that is. Go back to your hometown. So here he is, the long-awaited Messiah. Now, here, here's a, a significant point I want to make. When the book of Isaiah was handed to him, he turned, he found the place where it was written. The idea is he picked the passage himself. Now granted, it had to be from Isaiah, but he picked the passage he wanted to read. Presumably, he could have picked and read Isaiah 53. You know, the, the passage that describes the suffering servant who will bear the sins of many and so on. Why wouldn't he read Isaiah 53 to this audience? And, and uh, I, I think the answer is this. Because Isaiah 53 focuses on what the Messiah came to do. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many, right? You know? So it focuses on what the Messiah came to do. But they needed to know, first of all, who the Messiah was, right? So his identity was the first thing. The first order of the day was his identity as the Messiah. That's why I believe he quotes from Isaiah 61. And, and notice the identity of the Messiah is one who will come in the line of David with the Spirit upon him. In the Old Testament, the last king of Israel, remember, so David was the first in the line of the kings that leads to Christ. The last king of Israel, of the northern or southern kingdoms, either one, who is said to have the Spirit upon him, you know who it is? David. David. He's the only one in the whole Old Testament of whom it is explicitly stated he had the Spirit upon him. So they're looking for the greater David, the greater son of David, 
who will have the Spirit upon him. And indeed, that's Jesus. Okay, just three other passages real quickly here to wrap up this section. The question now is, what about the miracles of Christ? How did he do those? Well, look at Matthew 12, 28. Uh, he has just cast out a demon, performed this miracle. The, the uh, Pharisees who witnessed this could not deny it. They said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Here's how Jesus corrects them. Verse 28, but if I cast out demons by, notice he does not say my own divine power and authority. He could have done it that way, but he didn't. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You see the point? How do you, how do you know the kingdom of God has come? Because the king has come. How do you know that this is the king? He does this in the power of the Spirit. So indeed, if I cast out demons by the Spirit, guess who I am? The long-awaited Messiah. And I bring the kingdom with me then as the king of Israel. So indeed, he attributes the power used to perform this miracle to the Spirit. Acts 2.22, this is Peter on the day of Pentecost, after he quotes from Joel 2, he finished that section, and now he says this, men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus the Nazarene, notice, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. You see the emphasis? is on his humanity. Now this is, this is really interesting because Peter knows that Jesus was God. He worshiped Christ. Uh, he was with Thomas on that day after the resurrection when, when Jesus appeared in the room and he said, Thomas, be not unbelieving but believing. Come touch my hand, my side. And Thomas declared, my Lord and my God. John 20, 28 Peter was there. He knows Jesus is God. But if you ask him, how did he perform these miracles and wonders and signs that he did? His answer is not, he did it as God. Rather, he did it as a man empowered by God to do it. Now, in the next verse, he makes it clear that this empowerment by God is empowerment by the Spirit. So this statement, Acts 10, 38 is a statement by Peter to Cornelius when he brings the gospel to the Gentiles. He says to Cornelius, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Here it is again. His humanity is what is in view. He lived his life as a man in the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon him with power, and so he, he did the good things that he did. You know, his compassion, his kindness, and he performed the miracles that he did in the power of the Spirit. Uh, by the way, just a little um, side note. Don't miss the, the uh, linguistic connection between... Acts 10, 38, this verse. Uh, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. So don't miss the connection between Acts 10, 38 and Acts 1, 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You see it? How did Jesus live his life? 
the Holy Spirit and power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Oh my, this is really significant. I mean, honestly, uh, this is the main purpose of the coming of the Spirit, is to empower us to live lives that bring honor to God, to, to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, uh, to, 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 to uh, uh, live lives that, that resemble increasingly the way Christ lived his life. And uh, may God help us to see that. Okay, conclusion uh, of this, this uh, not the conclusion of the whole thing, okay, so, but uh, of this section. The Son relies on the direction and empowerment of the Spirit. The humility of the Son is shown, <coughs> excuse me, not only in the kenosis, that's the emptying of Christ in Philippians 2, taking on our humanity, but also in placing Himself in His humanity under the Spirit's empowerment and leading, the one over whom He has authority. And then furthermore, it helps us understand other things about Christ that are fascinating. For example, in Hebrews 4.15 we read, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. So we realize we're, we're supposed to look at him who understands our weakness, who has gone through the things we've gone through. He's been tempted in every way as we are, uh, yet without sin. So it seems to me it helps us understand that the way Jesus resisted temptation is the way we should resist temptation too. Well, how did he do it? And the answer is, he did it with resources given to him in his humanity. He used the word of God powerfully, didn't he? I mean, every time Satan tempted him, he came back with something from the word of God. He prayed, pray with me. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, he would say. Uh, he, he relied upon the Spirit to empower him to do the things that he did. So indeed, when you look at Jesus who resisted temptation, you realize we're given the same resources he was given. The question is, are we using the Word of God well? That's an important question, are we? How are you doing? In, in, your, in your time reading, thinking, lingering over the teaching of Scripture till it penetrates your mind and heart, how, how are you doing with your prayer life? You know, Jesus uh, had a vibrant prayer life. So it, isn't, it just doesn't just happen, right? It happens through exercising these different disciplines that God gives to us that help us to grow and become more like Christ. How are you doing on, on relying on the Spirit to do in you and through you what you cannot do? Indeed, that's what Jesus did. Here's another interesting insight from Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. We read this. Although he was a son, he was the son of God, the eternal son of the Father. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Here's the main point I want us to see on this, one of the tools the Father designed for the Son's maturation. That's what it means in verse 9, having been made perfect. It really probably should be translated, having been made mature. One of the tools that the Father used in the Son's maturing process was suffering. He learned obedience from the things that he suffered. Now, now, when it says he learned obedience, don't take that to mean 
Oh, he finally got it. He finally learned to obey, having disobeyed so many times previously. Clearly not. He never disobeyed. So instead, this means, are you ready for this? Because the, the, uh, the lesson comes to us as well. It means this, that the son learned to obey increasingly difficult demands of the father, preparing him for the greatest, most difficult demand the father would ever give him or anyone. Namely, go to the cross. And you realize when he is facing that, it is really difficult. Unless you make a mockery of the Garden of Gethsemane scene, right? Where Jesus is crying out with, with, with sweating as it were drops of blood. Cries out three times, Father, if you be willing, let this cup pass from me. But then... As much as he would rather, in his human nature, rather not go through all that is in front of him, what he wants more is, I want to do the will of my Father. And so he yields to the will of his Father. There, there's no sense of rebellion in the Son. Uh, one of you asked this question on a little sheet of paper. It's a very good question, very perceptive. But no, there's no rebellion in the Son. It's a recognition when, when he says, Father, if you'd be willing, let this cup pass from me. It's a recognition of just how incredibly difficult this is. And he needs to be reassured for sure right now that it must be. It must be. And if it must be, if this is your will, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll go. Not my will, but yours be done. But let me know for sure. This is your will. So indeed, he accepts it and, uh, and goes to the cross. But how did he get there? Through his suffering. So you, you realize, boy, this is what God designs for us also. I mean, most of us in this room could testify to at least one time, probably for many of you many times, where you realize that through the afflictions of life, you come out on the other side so much stronger then you would have been without that affliction, right? If it's all a cakewalk, you don't grow. Uh, if, if, if it's got uh, a lot of trials along the way and you trust God and you find his promises true and you believe his character and, and you cry out to him and he, and he comes to you in your need, you grow and you're able to handle more difficult things that God has for you. You won't be able to handle what God might have for you 10 years from now if you're not obedient now. He learned obedience from the things that he suffered. Okay, now moving ahead. I'm going to do this last part quickly with you because I know we're, uh, I don't know when you quit. Actually, I don't know that, but I'm, I'm, I know we're taking a lot of time here, so. Ah, uh, you never quit. Okay, I'm fine with that. <laughs> Okay, Roman numeral three, Jesus' authority and primacy over the Spirit in his role as the Son of the Father. So I take it that as the eternal Son of the Father, uh, he is the one who has authority over the Spirit. So even though in his humanity he yields to the Spirit, as the eternal Son, he always has had authority over the Spirit. So he's the one who sends the Spirit then. 
uh, re remember, I mean, this is just helpful to see this, that when the Son comes into the world, the Father sends the Son. The Spirit is not involved. We never read a passage that says, the Father and the Spirit sent the Son. Uh-uh. It's just the Father. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Uh, um, and and so, so many passages. The sending of the Son by, by the Father. But when it comes to the sending of the Spirit, it's the Father and the Son who send the Spirit. So John 15, John 14, 26, Jesus speaks of the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. 1526, the Helper, whom I will send to you from the Father. Do you see it? So you can really see it both ways. The ultimate sender is the Father, but the Father sends the Spirit through the Son. Rather than sending the Spirit directly as He does the Son, He sends the Spirit through the Son. You can see that in Acts 2.33. Therefore, having been, this is Peter on the day of Pentecost. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured forth that which you both see and hear. So he received the Spirit from the Father and then sent the Spirit on to the church. Now, what will the Spirit do when he comes? Listen to the words of Jesus. John 16. Jesus said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now look at this. For he will not speak on his own initiative. Do those words sound familiar? Last week, we looked at a passage in John 8 where Jesus said, I do not speak on my own initiative. I speak as the Father tells me. Now what does he say of the spirit? He will not speak on his own initiative. He will speak as I tell him. Uh, whatever he hears, presumably from me, that's what he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. So indeed, the, the, the uh, sending of the Spirit then is a sending of the Spirit from the Son. So the Spirit will carry out the work of the Son, speak the word of the Son. He, he, he will advance the mission of the Son. The Spirit will do, in everything the Spirit does, He will glorify the Son. My main complaint, this is a sweeping complaint against all things Pentecostal and charismatic. I'm, I'm taking the whole movement, uh, the variegated movement is very diverse, but the variegated movement in one fell swoop here. My main complaint is that their focus upon the Spirit is in such a way that, de that does not honor the spirit of this text. That when the spirit comes, he will glorify Christ. The spirit is not interested in making much of the spirit. The spirit is interested in making much of Christ. How many charismatic churches are all about the spirit? Spirit gifts, spirit empowerment, spirit displays, supernatural uh, uh, displays of power and the like. Where is Christ in this? And I'll tell you something. If Christ is not elevated, the spirit is not at work. No one can say Jesus is Lord without the spirit. What's the point? This is 1 Corinthians 12, 3. The one who says Jesus is accursed cannot do so by, by the Spirit. So what, what is the Spirit going to do when He comes? He's going to glorify the Son. The chief mark of a Spirit-filled person or Spirit-filled community is they long to see Christ honored. So indeed, that's what He does when He comes. Okay, now, 
One more thing I want you to see. And that is another thing that Jesus taught his disciples before he left was not only that he was going to send the Spirit, but that it was a good thing that he was leaving. And this was a shock to them. So look at John 16, verses 5 to 7. John 16, 5 to 7. Uh, Jesus, Jesus is speaking to them. He says, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? I mean, his, his point is this. You're not, you're not speaking normally with me. You know, if I, if I were to say to one of you, uh, you know, my, my wife and I are heading on a trip next week. You'd probably say, oh, really? Where are you going? I mean, that's kind of normal conversation, right? So Jesus is telling them he's leaving, and they're not saying, oh, where are you going, Jesus, right? They are stunned by those words. What do you mean you're leaving? You can't leave. You've just come. What, 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 are you, what are you talking about? That you're leaving. That makes no sense whatsoever. So they are absolutely astonished and stunned by Jesus' teaching. So, so I, I, I tell you that, I, that I'm leaving, but none of you says, where are you going? Verse 6, but because I have said these things to, to you, sorrow has filled your heart. No kidding. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. I think those are some of the most shocking words in the Bible. For Jesus, who has finally come as the Spirit anointed Messiah, they've been waiting for him. And what does he tell them? It is to your advantage that I'm leaving. So here's my question. What could be better, better advantage? What could be better than having Jesus walking by your side? Answer? having the spirit of Jesus live within your own life. <clears throat> so this is what he says. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The spirit who has been upon me will be upon you. The power I have had will be your power. Uh, the 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 source of wisdom I have had will be your source of wisdom. And, and on it goes. So indeed. Okay, I think I'll, I won't read the rest of those passages. couple points of application. Marvel at the perfect, loving, joyous obedience of the Son. He never sinned. I mean, that is just incredible to me. He never, ever once sinned in all that he did. His submission to the Father was uncompromising, his love for the Father unfailing, and his reliance on the Spirit shows how he is the perfect example for how we should live our lives. His obedience was not automatic. It was at every point hard fought and won by relying on the Word of God, by praying to the Father, by trusting in the power of the Spirit. He, he, he obeyed with great zeal and earnestness. It was hard fought and won. Second, last point, marvel at the Spirit's deep and abiding willingness to serve unnoticed without overt recognition and honor. Though he is fully God and is equal to the Father and the Son, yet his role consistently is to defer honor, to bring about the honor of the Son to the glory of the Father. I think of the Spirit sometimes as the one 
who has the spotlight, like if there were uh, uh, a, a, light, a light engineer in the back of the room, right, and running the spotlight. He, so the Spirit is shining the spotlight on the sun. He, he wa- who wants people to see the sun. Look at the sun. How glorious is the sun. They think, think, for example, of 2 Corinthians 3.18. Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord Jesus, we are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, that is in incrementally increasing degrees of glory, this is from the Lord, the Spirit. So what does the Spirit want us to, want us to see? The glory of Christ. And as we see the glory of Christ, His, His righteousness, His commitment to truth, His compassion, His, His forgiveness, His grace, His mercy, His uprightness and strength of character. As we look at Jesus, marvel at Jesus, respect Jesus, love Jesus. The Spirit uses that to conform us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. So indeed, may God help us to see the Spirit has been given first to Christ to enable Him to fulfill His mission, but then that very same Spirit given to us to help us live like Christ and become more like Christ. All right, let's pray together, and then I'm happy to take any questions as well. Father, thank you for our time together to look at these uh, passages and see the unfolding of the life and ministry of Jesus who has come uh, in the power of the Spirit. And thank you for sending Jesus, and thank you for sending the Spirit. Uh, What an incredible uh, dual gift to us who need his atoning work and need the transforming power of the Spirit. So thank you, Lord God. Help us to live increasingly in that Spirit empowerment to become more like Christ and bring glory to your name. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, any questions you have at the end of this time that you'd like to bounce around a bit? Yes, please. Uh, Yes, Dr. Rara. Thanks for being here. Uh, Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in reading your book, uh, could you expound upon the gnosis? Yeah. And you gave two examples. The one where he is the, the king that became a beggar. Yes. Beggar right. Clothes, or the new the, bar and the mm-hmm. test ride. Right, right. Because it, it's, it's, that helped me to understand <laughs> Jesus and his humanity having to, to rely on the spirit. Right, right. Yeah, so, so in, in Philippians 2 where it talks about Jesus, he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. So this passage is referring to Jesus living as God, takes on humanity. What, what is entailed in that is not, not a removal of his deity or any of his divine attributes. It is not that. If that happened, he can't atone for sin. And by the way, the reason that is, is because in order for the atonement to work, he has to be one of us to substitute himself for us, to bear our sin and to die on the cross. But the the offering that he makes has to be of infinite value to pay in an instant what if we paid for it ourselves, we could never pay for it. This is why hell is eternal, is because we could never pay off the debt we owe 
to a holy God from the sin we have committed. So he, he pays for it like that. Why? How can he do it? And we can't. He's God. He's God. So, okay, so he has to be fully God. So he doesn't give up any deity or any attribute of his deity, but when he takes on humanity, uh, he, he accepts then the limitations of the use of the expression of those divine attributes that would conflict with his humanity. So he can't live as an authentic human and be omnipotent. He, he, now he can, he's omnipotent in his divine nature, but in his human nature that omnipotence cannot be, as it were, um, c cannot act through his humanity. He can't be an authentic human and, and be omnipresent. He has to travel from one place to another. So all of those ways in which his divine, the qualities of his divine nature conflict with his humanity, they, they then cannot be expressed, although they are possessed by him and used by him in his divine nature. So at one and the same time, I'll just give you an example, he's a baby in the manger as helpless as can be while he's upholding the universe together by the word of his power. Right, because he's both genuinely, authentically man, and in this case, baby, infant, you know, and genuinely, authentically God, both are true simultaneously when he takes on our human nature. But you don't have those qualities of divinity, as it were, shining through his humanity, because that would make his humanity unreal. It would make his humanity phony, right, rather than genuine. Yeah, that's kind of the idea. Other things, other, other questions any of you might have. Yes, please. Uh, you spoke about him being empowered by the Holy Spirit. Yes. That this empowerment was also given to the apostles when the Spirit was poured out on them. Um, of course, Jesus, is, his name being the Messiah, refers to him being the anointed one. Yes. In what way does his anointing, what way is that the same as what's poured out on ah, others? In good. what way is it different? Ah, good, good. Very good question. The way it's the same is this, that uh, Jesus accomplished the mission the Father gave him to do in the power of the Spirit. And as the Spirit is given to us, then we are enabled to fulfill the mission that God gives to us in the power of the Spirit. However, his mission and our mission are not going to be the same mission. We're not sent into the world to die for sin. And, and beyond that, I think it includes also, do you, you remember when uh, John the Baptist, this is in, recorded in Matthew 11, when John the Baptist sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the anointed one? Are you the Messiah? Or shall we look for another? I mean, the reason John asked that question was because he'd read his Old Testament. He, he knew what was supposed to happen when Messiah came. He's going to vanquish the enemies of Israel. He's going to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. And here the king in Jerusalem, Herod, has put John the Baptist, the forerunner of Messiah, into jail. I mean, what's wrong with this picture, right? So are you the Messiah or shall we look for another? And so Jesus said, go tell John what you see and hear. Now listen, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the poor have the gospel preached to them. He's quoting from Old Testament passages, Isaiah 32, I forget other, I'd have to look and see. Isaiah 32 is one of them. Old Testament passages that, that indicate what Messiah will do when he comes that include these miracles. So I think people make the mistake in saying, ah, oh, Jesus performed miracles in the power of the Spirit. We should be able to perform miracles in the power of the Spirit. I don't think that's how it works. 
because those miracles were identified with his messianic identity. How do, how do you know he's the Messiah? Look, uh, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. And so he was able to perform miracles testifying to his messianic identity. In a similar way, this was true with the apostles. Uh, the, the, the signs of an apostle were done among you, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. So indeed, now it's not to say that God doesn't do miracles and can't, can't continue to do miracles. Absolutely. But I don't think it means that anyone after the time of the apostles has that identification marker as being one who is who he is as evidenced by doing miracles. That was true of the Messiah. That was true of the apostles. <clears throat> so the correlation is not, I can do everything that Jesus did. That's not the way you make the correlation. It's rather, I can fulfill my mission by the power of the Spirit, just as he fulfilled his mission in the power of the Spirit, although his mission and my mission are going to be different. And, and let's, let's be clear on that. So I think that's, that, that's the main way I'd see that. Other things, questions, anyone want to ask, explore further? Yes, please. Um, how, why did Jesus have to go into the wilderness to be tempted? Why didn't it just happen in his daily life? Well, it did. You know, th thank you. Good question. The temptations did happen in his daily life, too. Uh, I think it is Luke that says at the end of it G that Satan left him until an opportune time. And so it, it isn't indicating just then, and, you know, it's like, whew, it's over, you know, done with that. Um, but rather, he was tempted all the time. He was tempted in every way as we are. And, and by that, I don't think that statement in Hebrews 4.15 means that he was tempted with every single temptation every single one of us is tempted with. That's logically impossible. An alcoholic is tempted in ways that a non-alcoholic is not, you know, and so on, right? Uh, so it's not, not that he was tempted with every specific temptation, but every category of temptation, every kind that we have. And, uh, and so I think it was really the whole of his life, although there was an intensification uh, at... Um, at the point when he, when he began his public ministry. I mean, re realize Satan knew the answer to this question. How many sins does it take to make a sinner? He knows the answer. And so he knows all he has to do is get him to sin one time, and it's over. He cannot be the substitutionary sacrifice and savior of sinners if he sins once. Incredible. And Satan, Satan knows it, and he's after him relentlessly. I mean, I, I, honestly, I, the mo older I get, the more I think about this, I am absolutely astonished at the sinlessness of Christ. And we all ought to be. We ought, ought to just go, wow, how incredible. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your resolute obedience. And then, can I add to that? Here's to add to that, is this. Do you, do you know that when we are saved, we're justified by faith? You know that doctrine in the New Testament? That, that we're declared righteous. 
Uh, Romans 4, if you want to read, Romans 4 has a, is, has a great development of that doctrine of justification by faith, not by works. So justification is the declaration of righteousness. Notice that it's not merely the declaration of innocence. Right? It, it is that. It is that. We are declared innocent. That is forgiven. So forgiveness, canceling out the debt, we're no longer guilty is part of justification, but it's not the whole of it. We're not merely declared innocent. We are declared righteous. Well, where does that righteousness come from? And the answer is the obedience of Christ. So justification, it is not only the case that when we're justified, it is just as if I had never sinned. That's true, but it's only part of it. Here's the rest of it. It is just as if I had always obeyed because I am given the righteousness of Christ who always obeyed. Wow. It is, it takes your breath away. It is stunning, staggering, incredible. Glory be to God. Thank you, Lord Jesus for living an obedient life, and all of that obedience is imputed, credited to this sinner and all of us, you know, by, by faith. Amazing. Yeah. So, yes, please. Do God and your Father correspond or talk over a Jesus' son, the plan for the world, or ultimately the plan for Jesus' coming to the world and dying? Right. Yeah, it's a good question because the, the New Testament makes clear this is the plan of the Father. It is, it is the design of the Father. The Father sends the Son. Now, it's also so the Father wills to send the Son, but the Son also wills to come. But one of those wills is an initiating, planning will, and the other one is a, an embracing, agreeing um, what voluntary will to accept what the Father gives him. And so they, they both have the same content in terms of what the will is, namely, go to earth and be the Savior. The content is the same, but the Father is the one who initiates it. The Son is the one who accepts and embraces that will from the Father. Yeah. Yes, please. So, uh, this would be one of the 30. Uh, you feel like that. That's fine. In every act that God does, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit all cooperate, right? They do. Okay, so when the Father sends the Son, and He's here for 33 years, how is the Son uh, acting in His role over all? Yeah. Hey, that is anything but a stupid question you know that's not in that category at all you'll have to try again harder if you if you if, if you if you want one of those that doesn't qualify I'm sorry uh, that's a very good question um, okay so when, when the Sun comes he doesn't give up any of his divine attributes he, he doesn't discard his divine nature he he goodness he's God God cannot fail to be God right so he is the Son of God, the Son of the Father, and eternally, uh, eternally possesses the divine nature. 
<coughs> when he takes on humanity, he has another nature. I mean, this is what makes it so difficult for us to comprehend. We don't know of one person who can exist, live through two natures at the same time. We, we understand one person, one nature. We understand that. That's us, right? We don't understand one person, two natures. But Jesus was just that, one person, two natures. So he can simultaneously um, exist, think through, experience through his human nature. So weakness, tiredness, limitation, hunger, thirst, <clears throat> doesn't know everything. I don't know the hour of the second coming, Mark 13, 32. So all, all those kinds of limitations that are true in his human nature that are genuinely experienced by Jesus while simultaneously he is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He, he is omniscient. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power moment by moment by moment by moment. So anything that's required of him in his deity, he does it. Because that nature is his. And he can act through that divine nature. Anything required of his, of his humanity, he does it. Uh, because that nature is his. And, and so he wills to act through his human nature in everything required of him that requires his humanity to do it. He acts through his divine nature in anything that's required of him that requires his divine nature to do it. So that, that's, I mean, it's difficult to comprehend how that could be. It's a mystery at one level, but nonetheless, that's the basic model for how, how it works. Good, thank you. Yes, please. Um, I was blessed by what you spoke about last week on prayer. Yes. Can you pray too? Right. Um, could you comment on worship? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah, with, <clears throat> with worship, um, interestingly, the Spirit has the same fundamental role in worship as he does in prayer. Namely, fundamentally, the empowerer of praying, the empowerer of worship, right? But the focus in prayer is to pray to the Father in the name of the Son. The focus in worship is to worship the Son to the glory of the Father. Again, as I said with prayer, that's the norm. There are exceptions, right? So it's not an absolute, but that's the norm. Likewise with worship, the norm is to worship the Son in the power of the Spirit that redounds to the glory of the Father. So I, th I think of Philippians uh, 2 verse 11 as really helpful. Every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. So the, so the spotlight is on the Son. But, but that necessarily redounds to the glory of God the Father. That's the way verse 11 ends, right? Because it's everything the Son did fulfilled the will of the Father. He did the work of his father, and so on. So the father, in, in a sense, receives ultimate praise and glory in all of our worship of the son. Now, that's not to say that worship cannot be sometimes the whole trinity. Uh, you know, when the, when the council at Constantinople added to the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed was 325 at Constantinople in 381, they expanded the third article of the Nicene Creed that dealt with the Holy Spirit. In 325, all they said was, we believe in the Holy Spirit, period. That's it. So they, they, you know, they weren't interested yet in working on the Spirit. They had to get the Son figured out. But then in 381, they added, and they added these phrases, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, 
who proceeds from the Father, now listen to this one, who with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. So they added those five clauses, and that fourth one, who with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified, indicates because he also is fully God, he with the Father and Son is worthy of worship uh, with them. But the fact of the matter is, we have no biblical record of direct worship of the Spirit, just as we have no biblical record of direct praying to the Spirit. Isn't that interesting? We do have the Son, we do have the Father, that is worship of the Son, worship of the Father. <coughs> Revelation 4 is the Father, worship of the Father and Son together, probably with the Spirit, is Revelation 5, uh, but not of the Spirit alone. So it looks as though the Spirit is the empowerer or, or is with the Father and the Son part of the triune God who is the object of worship. That's appropriate as well. Good, thank you. Good question. Anything else? Yes, maybe we'll make this the last one. Yes, sir, please. Since uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all one at all times, uh, could you explain that, like the crucifixion? Yeah. Why have you forsaken me? Was he the divine nature experiencing separation of the, his physical nature? Yeah. Or was there separation? Because if you just you know, take it at context or, or, or at, at face value, yeah, right. Yeah, it's difficult. That, that's a really uh, tough passage to comprehend. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he quotes from Psalm 22. I mean, one, one thing to bear in mind is no doubt the son has the whole psalm in mind. He, he can't just say Psalm 22, right? So you give the first line of the psalm, and it's to bring to mind the whole psalm. And the reason I mention that is because if you read about two-thirds of the way through Psalm 22, it changes from, why have you abandoned me? Why, why have you left me to myself, left me alone? To, you will bring me back. You will restore me. Uh, you, you, you will provide for me uh, anew. So the psalm ends very optimistically. So I think the son had the whole psalm in mind, that though he's undergoing this horrid judgment because of our sin right now, it won't, it won't last forever. It'll end, and then comes the glory of reunion, as it were, with the Father. So that's part of it. The other thing is, we've got to remember that everything the Son was doing on the cross was exactly what the Father gave him to do, right? So he never was disobedient. He, he, just the opposite. He was completely obedient in everything he did as he spoke those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it is not a forsaking that relates to him personally. It's a forsaking that relates to him as sin bearer, bearing our sin. That's a whole different thing. I mean, at, you know, wh while the father's wrath is against his son because of our sin, he also would never have been more pleased with his son. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Who is doing exactly what he sent him to do. He has accepted it. Not my will, but yours be done. Here it's happening. So, so there is no rift in the Trinity between Father and Son. The Son is the obedient Son 
all the way through. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So indeed, there's no rift in the Trinity, but what there is is the experience in his humanity. I liken it to the experience that he had, I'm thirsty. He cries out from the cross, right? He experiences genuine human thirst. He experienced earlier in his life genuine human hunger, genuine human tiredness. You know? So he is now experiencing genuine human alienation from God. This father who had been to him in his human experience only and always favorable. He had only known the favor of his father. Every moment of his human life, he had only known the favor of his father. Because he had always been obedient, always had been doing what the father called him to do. But now, he's being obedient. 